Welcome to another episode of Tell Me More. I'm Luke Sayre. Today, Dr. Wiles and I have a conversation about his sermon on Sunday and just what it looks like when the little story gets written into the grand story. And we hope that you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to Tell Me More. My name is Luke Stair, and Dr. Wiles and I are here today having a conversation about John. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about weddings yesterday, <laughs> and you've had your fair share of wedding uh, experiences. You've so. shared a few of those mm-hmm. with us. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't listened to the sermon, there are some doozies <laughs> that you've experienced. That's pretty funny. Um, weddings are interesting. You know, they, they bring out... Um, yeah, they, you know, that, well, they bring families together. So, you know. Yes, they do, for better or worse. <laughs> Mostly together. What I mean, they bring them physically together. So, yes. um, yeah, so I've, I've seen one or two things in weddings, and, uh, but I love them. You know, they're great celebrations, but uh, yeah, some interesting things happen. And I had plenty more stories I didn't tell yesterday. So, I'm uh, sure you did. <laughs> As you said, you've only done one or two. I've done one or two, and uh, I'll do one or two more this year. And they kind of, they usually come in clumps. It's kind of interesting, you know. It's like um, you'll go for a little while, and you feel like, man, I hadn't done a wedding in a while. Then all of a sudden, you have one every weekend for six weeks, you know. Mm. And and now things have changed where people get married on Fridays, they get married on Sundays. I mean, used to, you know, when I first started, you you, you only, the, the big question was Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening. That, that was really the only question. Right. And usually that had to do with the couple's plans, you know, afterwards, or even the dress, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that, you know, you didn't wear tails and formal till after six, you know, you would have never had a tuxedo at an afternoon wedding and you sure would have had one at an outdoor wedding. Well, right. Look at how (laughs) times have changed. (laughs) Let's just say yes, times have changed and I'm good with all of it. I like it all. So this wedding, this is a big one. How about this one? There's a lot of interesting things we can go into. Mm-hmm. I, I'll ask the Baptist question first. <laughs> Good. <laughs> People listening have probably had at one point in their life someone contend that this is not wine. Right. It's grape juice. Right. I think I had a Sunday school teacher tell me that once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and I heard the same thing growing up, you know, that, uh, you know, um, that if, well, or, or what, what sometimes people would say to us was, well, it wasn't fermented, you know, like like you would normally do, because Jesus just made it. I mean, my goodness. Well, the problem with that is what the master of ceremony said. <laughs> he, <laughs> he tasted it and just said, my goodness. This is the best wine I've ever had. What in the world? <laughs> and so I don't have any doubt about that. I think it was real wine. And, and that's coming from somebody who's not a wine drinker, you know. I'm, I'm a teetotaler, so, but, but I get it. Um, I just think that... Culturally, and, and not only that, even I would probably argue theologically, the the role of wine, you know, and, and what it uh, portrays for um, our understanding of the messianic age, if you will. Right. Um, all of that is woven into this story. So I don't have any doubt this is real wine and, uh, and a lot of it. Six yes. jars. Quite a bit. What was it? Twenty, thirty gallons each. Something like I don't, that. I don't know how you normally buy wine, but that feels to me like a lot of wine. <laughs> so, anyway, and would it surprise me that if Jesus, you know, what Augustine said was when he read this story, Augustine said, "Well, this is a miracle, but all it is is a compressed miracle." He says because the Lord makes wine out of water every day. In other words, 
you know, you 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 plant, you know, a grapevine, and the Lord waters the ground and waters the vine, and the and the, you know, the vine soaks up that water mm-hmm. and produces these succulent grapes that eventually turn into wine. So Augustine said, "Well, why, why would you be surprised that Jesus would do that? He just kind of circumvented the process a little bit." I'm, I'm using my words for his thought, but I always thought that was interesting for Augustine's take that. He just said sometimes miracles are just speeding up or or truncating a process, you know, that only the Lord could do, you know, just right. like stopping the storm. Well, you know, a storm is eventually going to stop. Jesus just just did it immediately just to show you had power over it. Um, but regardless how you look at it, it's a pretty profound miracle. And why would I be surprised that the wine Jesus makes in that moment wouldn't, why am I surprised it would be the very best wine? Well, of course. Right. <laughs> Is the hand of the master, the creator. So, uh, yeah, it's a great story. It really is. I one of the things I think about this. T- I've done Baptist ministry internationally, and a lot of times I think we forget that a lot of our attitudes towards alcohol are cultural, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even among Baptists. Mm-hmm. So I did Baptist ministry in Denmark in a building that shared space between an English-speaking church of multiple countries, a mm-hmm. Danish Baptist church, and a Romanian Baptist church. Wow. Well, Danish Baptists, they can be super conservative, won't let women preach, but they're going to put beer in the church fridge. <laughs> and there you have it. Yeah. And that actually happened one time. And yeah. Romanian Baptists have very strict approaches towards alcohol, okay, won't yeah. even consider it. Right. And they actually ended up leaving the building sharing over a dispute over alcohol. Wow. So recognizing yeah. attitudes vary here, but Jesus did make yeah, the real stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's funny, uh, we just went this weekend to watch the movie The Jesus Revolution. Mm. I recommended it Sunday. It's a great <clears throat> movie. But Chuck Smith Church, Calvary Chapel, very <clears throat> very conservative church there in California in the late 60s. And uh, and so there's a scene where, um, where they allow these hippies, you know, to actually come to church. And uh, one of them is a is a preacher, a pretty famous guy, a guy named Lonnie Frisbee. So mm-hmm. it's, just, it's a true story about these men, you know, and how they figured all this out and what to do with the work of God, the Spirit of God moving, and 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 them basically just um, just being led by the Spirit day to day. That's really what was happening when you read when you hear Chuck Smith's version of it. That's really what was going on. But anyway, <coughs> excuse me. In the movie, one point they're serving the Lord's Supper. And this hippie preacher is his first time to be there with him, you know, and so he's sitting next to someone and they, you know, they pass the elements and he takes a drink and he goes, and he whispers to the person next to him, I'm pretty sure that wasn't wine. And, uh, you know, because <laughs> Chuck would have never had wine in, you know, in the in communion. I mean, it was grape juice like we use. And uh, so, but, um, but I'm, I'm, as much as I'm not a proponent of, of uh, alcohol consumption, um, I live in a very different cultural setting, you know, and have a lot of different views about all that today. But there's no doubt about that in this story. And I think it, again, it connects to a big story. Right. You know, a much bigger story. Mm-hmm. And so I, I pulled up Isaiah 25 just to help illustrate the connection to the Old Testament. And mm-hmm. so if you turn to Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6, you have On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the finest of wines. Mm -hmm. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow death up forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Mm. The Lord has spoken. Mm. Mm. And so John 
We talk, You mentioned that this is a sign and signs point to something. So John is, I think, doing two ways of pointing. He's pointing backwards. Jesus is pointing back to this prophetic image in Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And then John, who we also know writes Revelation, right. is pointing forward mm-hmm. to the final banquet. And this wedding banquet mm-hmm. with the finest wine mm-hmm. sits right mm-hmm. in the middle. Yeah. I, and I, and I, I love that, Luke. I think that... You know, I think Jesus, he had to um, use imagery and engage in actions that communicated to that time. And there is no question there was that in the back of the minds of Israel. There was this era, this age of just incredible provision where God Mm -hmm. just is going to pour out everything for his people. And well, what's, what's the best image of that? Well, a banquet, you know, where there's enough food, the best food for everybody. Everybody is able to eat it, and and there's drink for everybody, and it's the best that the world has to offer because that's what God provides. And so, that banquet feast is powerful imagery. And again, obviously, as I said, Sunday we find in the Book of Revelation. You know, you know when I was um, one time I was in um, West Africa, and we were meeting with a group of Fulani. Um, believers, and some weren't believers. Some were, um, in fact, most of them weren't. Most of them were just Fulani herdsmen. But uh, they had, um, our workers there had had let them know that we were having this meeting. And so these these men came in. They're all shepherds, herdsmen. That's what the Fulani mainly do there. And they live in a scarcity culture. You know, Mm -hmm. there's not enough food and water. It's a very arid culture. It's a very thin um men mostly. And so uh, we were having this conversation about Jesus. They wanted to know, like I said, only two or three believers, most of them were Muslim. Folk Islam, though, you know, not real strict if you, Islam, right. you know what I mean? You know, more of an animistic kind of African, if, if I can say it politely, um, rural kind of approach to Islam. And uh, so one of the one of the guys, um, the way they introduced me was that I'm a holy man. Well, that don't, that made sense to them. You know, they wouldn't have no clue of what a pastor was. You know, right. or anything like that. But but for the holy man, and um, and so one of the herdsmen, he said, so um, he said, you know, we we talk about this at the mosque. He said, but we don't we don't really know anything really about it. And um, he said, so could you tell me what? So what will heaven? Be, why, why, why would we want to go to heaven? What would heaven be like? Mm. I thought, what a what a great question. So we had numerous conversations just about what the Bible teaches. And then at some point in the conversation, one of them said something like, well, will there be food in heaven? You know, Or is that, is that something we will continue to do? Or how does that work? And I thought, what a great question. And I said, okay, y'all. I said, let me give you this image, you know, that the Lord has painted for us. So when I started telling them about this banquet, and there would be enough food for everyone. Well, these men are accustomed to looking at a meal and deciding who gets to eat, in other words. So you 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 would feed, you know, the man who's the worker. He would take a little bit, but he would make sure his children ate because he knew that if you don't feed the children, you know, there's no hope for the next generation. And so um, they don't have leftovers. that They wouldn't know what that was. You know, like if they ever... <clears throat> they don't eat a whole lot of meat, but if they were to like kill a chicken, for example, well, they eat the bones, you know, so there's, there is nothing to throw away. And so when I started describing this, well, they all, so my translators have, well, they all just start laughing and they're, 
punching each other and and they're making the sign of having a really big belly, you know, and kind of yeah. acting like they're that's how they're going to be, you know. And and I thought, isn't that interesting that that the Lord gave an image that everybody could relate to, you know, for these guys to believe that there was enough food that when you finished eating, there was still more food. They just couldn't. One of the men said, "I've never sat in a meal where when we finished eating, there was anything left to eat." That's you know, I've never seen that before. I can't even believe that's real. You know, mm. and I thought, wow, what a what a word from God that what's in our future is this incredible provision at his hand. And that's what the Jews longed for, you know. And so that's why I think that John um, has had years to reflect on all of this. And I think it's been um, brewing and steeping in his mind. How do I tell this story um, and how the spirit of God led John to even tell the story in the first place? Aren't we glad he did, though? And so to me. I'm always interested in the in the placement of the stories in John's gospel and how he chooses to tell them because I think he's painting a portrait. Mm. He's 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 engaging in an artistic expression of the Messiah. And he tells us at the end, the reason I've done all this is so that you'll know Jesus is the Messiah and you believe in him, you'll have life in his name. And so it doesn't surprise me that the very first miracle in John's gospel is at a wedding banquet of all places. And 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 Jesus even lets us in on it. Right. You know, when Jesus uses language like, well, my hour hasn't come yet. Wow, okay. <laughs> so the full understanding of the Messiah, we're not ready for that yet, but give us a glimpse. And then John lets us in because you get to the end of it, and John says, well, this is the first sign. You know, first sign where we saw his glory. Well, it was more than just wine at a banquet. It was that. But it was a, it was a sign that right. something's afoot here. You know? Yeah, the messianic age has begun. Yes, yeah, and at a banquet of all places, which is where it's going to end up. <laughs> you know what I mean? This, I mean, this, this yeah. is where we're headed. So we're going to start here, and we're going to actually end here. But he, why would I be shocked by that? He starts his gospel in the beginning. Well, in the beginning, there's a wedding, you know, and then we go all the way to the end, and there's, there's another, another wedding. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, uh, if you're paying attention. John is is actually telling the big story, you know, if you're really watching. That's why, you know, one time I remember we were, um, when I was uh, young in seminary, and we were, um, I was taking my very first Greek class, and our Greek professor said, okay, we're going to start with John. We're going to do first John this first semester, and then we're going to wade into the gospel of John. Well, you know, I'd grown up in the church, <clears throat> and... Um, Familiar, obviously, with the Bible. I mean, going to Sunday school and all those things, but I never really studied at that level. Obviously, I was more. I was in the. I was. I thought I was going to medical school in college. So I was in the sciences and biology and chemistry and physiological psychology and all that. So I'd never had any kind of, you know, Greek or Hebrew right. language that it was all brand new to me. But I also remembered that for me at that time in my life, John was kind of an enigma, you know? I mean, when I thought about the gospel stories, well, you know, Luke and, I don't know, Matthew, I mean, I, and you got the wise men and shepherds and all that. John was kind of this, hmm. Now, you know, you had John 3.16, you got Nicodemus, sure, but, but it Some just— Some nice quotable bits. Yeah, but it just felt like the other gospel, you know, that I just didn't—I had not spent a lot of time with. So one day I asked him, so why would we, I mean, we're brand new Greek students, you know, I'm thinking, and I know nothing about Greek, and I'm thinking, why Why would we pick John? <laughs> I mean, you know, this is this, and so this really artistic 
person, you know, the way my professor said this. He said, well, John, what's interesting about John is that it is simple enough for a small child to understand it. He said, but it's deep enough. If, if, you, if you're paying attention, it'll get over your head pretty quickly. And he said, you know, elephants can drown in John's gospel, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and I've never forgotten that, that on the one hand, man, it's a simple story. You know, he just beautiful, great conversations. I mean, Nicodemus and, you know, the woman at the well. I mean, these are great personal stories. But when you've, when you've actually done your homework and you really start thinking through what he's actually doing, dude, it, it gets really complex quickly. It does. <laughs> you know, and beautiful, you know, yeah. beautiful. And, um, and so, yeah, and that's what I was trying to capture Sunday morning to let, help the church. You, you know, you don't want to go to seed on things, but you can't miss the messianic um, expectation and fulfillment in John's gospel with Jesus. You just you just can't miss it, you know. And uh, and that's why I want to make sure that I know we're at the very it's the very first sign. But just remember, this sign was a messianic sign, and John wants to make sure you you know you catch it. And uh, so I love that about about John. I mean, you know, you, our next story. You think about Nicodemus. Well, here, so so you've got a nondescript family that we know nothing about. Okay. Well, now they've, they're written into the script. Well, then this next one, we're going to have this religious leader who supposedly knows everything. Right. He's going to get written in the script, you know. Then you're going to get this Samaritan woman who knows nothing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whose life is a tad questionable, whether she was victimized or whether it was the product of her own decisions. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. But the point is, to com- in that culture, to compare her to Nicodemus, well, you couldn't even you couldn't even have done that. You couldn't have had <laughs> opposites. Yeah, you couldn't have talked about them in the same sentence, and yet they're juxtaposed in John's gospel. And it's it's like everybody gets in on this. That's what I like about it. It's like this 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 is this messianic age is going to include everybody. It's going to take and, the shroud off of all the nations. Exactly. Which um, you know I'm, I, I love that Luke. I love John's artistry, even though we can tell the story very simply. You know, particularly in Greek, you know, I mean, first John is some of the easiest Greek in the New Testament. And yet it is a riveting, powerful message about love and oh, a very goodness, convicting <laughs> word from John. And uh, and then his gospel is powerful. And then if you really want to, you know, we just got back from Rome. And one of the things we do in Rome is we always, you know, just explore the massive amount of art and architecture in Rome. Uh, maybe there's another city like Rome in the world. I'm, I'm not sure what it would be. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> this collection of uh, priceless art and architecture. It's incredible. Well, you admire the artistry. That's one of the things that we do when you go to Rome. Well, you read, you know, the letters from John. You read the Gospel of John. And if you think you've encountered art, wait till you get to Revelation. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, then all of a sudden you're in the... You're in the high Renaissance era, you know, of literature, and so, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping our people will slow down, read, inject themselves in the story, and um, and and just see how one of the I couldn't remember which one it is, but one of the commentators I read, he says, when you're reading these stories, think of them as mirrors. John's holding up a mirror mm-hmm. to let you see well. Well, Jesus looks like this, and and you kind of look like this, you know, or you could, 
on the next story, well, actually, he looks like this too, <laughs> you know. And, and, and maybe this and, is you. Maybe this really is you. So um, when I think about it that way, it really adds some texture to it for me. And uh, so that's why yesterday, you know, we're in the middle of this conversation about messianic expectations, messianic age, which is all theological reflection, you know, rooted in in, in just uh, the biblical literature and expectations and first century Judaism and all of that, which to me is is a part of all of this, you know, and, and, and it's hard for us. We live in this fast-paced 21st century, you know, and to get back into that world is always a challenge, you know. I remember one time I stopped Todd Steele in the in the hallway at Truett Seminary. He's our dean there now, and I said, um, "I said, hey man, how's it going today?" He said, it, "It's going really well." I said, "What you been doing?" He said, "Just basically living in the first century, um, you know, <laughs> hanging out." <clears throat> I can imagine him <laughs> and, saying yeah, that. And I thought, "In there, you have it." And aren't we glad there are people like him who are just hanging out in the first century, just trying to figure all this out for us? And uh, so we have some great minds that do that for us. Well. I'm going to invite us into that, you know, to think about what was that like? So what was it like for this little family putting on a wedding, you know, for the whole area? I don't know. Was Jesus a famous rabbi already by then? You know what I mean? So think about it. You've, you not only have invited your friends and your family. I mean, you you know, maybe you've, maybe you've invited a dignitary. And if two. he's not famous, he's at least intriguing yeah, at this point. Yeah, I would think so. Okay. Well, the last thing you want to do is is embarrass yourself culturally, you know? So what was that like for them? And then for us to climb inside of that, what would that be like for us? And then to, it's almost like you can sense the desperation in Mary's voice to Jesus. Yes. You know, something needs to be done. And I love the way she did it when when Jesus says, you know, woman, you know, um, why, are you, why are you involving me? My hour hasn't come. And instead of answering the question, she looks at the service and just says, do whatever he tells you to do, <laughs> and then walks off. <laughs> I love that. And, uh, so it uh, turns out that's what they did. And, um, well, that, that desperation, I sense that in her voice. It's kind of like you'll hear it when, um, when Jesus doesn't come to Bethany. And Martha runs out to meet Jesus, basically, and says, you where, come. Yeah, where, where have you been? Yeah. Did you not? Basically, did you not get my message? You know, I mean, but her desperation had already turned to grief. It was over, you know, so, okay. Um, well, you know, so I got to thinking about that, praying about it. And uh, it led me to start thinking about in my own life, when have I ever felt desperate? You know, what, what are those moments that I can actually circle and go, you know, I found myself in a place where I was out of resources, and I felt a certain desperation, mm. and I needed to do something and didn't know what to do. Well, I, you know, I've, I won't say that I've had a lifetime filled with those, but I've had enough of them. And I've been a pastor a long time. Mm. I've seen some desperate looks, you know. Yeah, I'm sure you have. And, um, and that just led me to think, well, what leads us to that? Well, it's an interesting, Luke, how often it's connected to family. Just we get burdened. You know, about our families. And so I uh, prayed about it and I thought, well, how can I acknowledge that in my church? So that's what led me to just ask our church yesterday, okay, if if you feel that, you know, you got that sense of desperation, I'm going to ask you just to stand, you know. Maybe, maybe it's your own family or maybe you're like Mary. <laughs> you're standing on someone else's behalf. And, um, dude, so many people just stood up to let our church pray over them and 
encourage them and let them know you're not alone in this desperation and you're not the first one mm. to run to the Lord and say, can, can you help me? Can you do something? You know, and after church was over in both worship services, I heard testimonies from church members saying things like, man, it felt so good to acknowledge this and to look around and think, wow, I'm not by myself and my church is at least praying for me. So yeah, yeah, it was um, it was a very pivotal moment for us in worship yesterday, and following on the heels of Ash Wednesday, you know, where you your desperation about your own sin, which is mm. one of the things we ought to be desperate about, right? <laughs> you, you know, to come forward, as I said in that service, I don't think there's anything magical about putting ashes in the form of a cross on your forehead. That's not the point, but it is powerful to acknowledge your need and the fact that it's through that cross symbolically placed on your forehead that you have found the answer to your deepest need and to know that it's an ongoing journey, you know, right, and right, right. that process of repentance and confession and, and, and being humble before the Lord. What a, what a way to begin Easter, <laughs> you know, um, in humility. So Wednesday and Sunday were both very powerful moments for me humbling moments. And and I said in both worship services when we did the, the the moment where we all stood to pray or to acknowledge, I said, I'm gonna make sure, you know, I'm standing too. You know, I I'm, mm. I'm, I'm <laughs> I didn't go over and sit down and stand back up, but just know I'm standing with you, you know, because I'm living this too. And I would just say to anybody listening right now, if you've got that sense of desperation, I would encourage you to do what Mary did. Just bring it to the Lord and Ask him for his help and see what he chooses to do. And he may not make wine for you, um, but my goodness, I've seen him do so many things through the years, Luke. In my own life, lives of others, I've seen him answer, provide, heal, break through um, in ways that I don't know that you can always understand. Um, <clears throat> you know, and um, he brings resources into people's lives in ways that only he can do. And um, yeah, so it's a that's, that story to me, years ago when I first started preaching, I avoided that story, I'll be honest with you, because I just didn't, I just didn't give a whole lot of thought to it, in all honesty, mm. you know, and it was, I was like, okay, you know, I get it. I mean, Jesus is the Messiah, he turned water into wine. And so I look back on a couple of other times I preached on that text, and I so undersold it. <laughs> I feel like I almost need to go back and apologize, maybe to a couple of churches, and just say, "Okay, y'all, let's reread this story," um, because I didn't really give it enough credit for what it really is, and uh, it's powerful. All of them are, but this one here to me, what a what a way to launch the ministry of Jesus. So, yeah, it yeah. was it was it was important. <clears throat> well, I think too, this invitation to stand and to pray is a is a good reminder that these people in John that Jesus encounters are. They're just regular people mm-hmm. like us. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing inherently special or unique about this family or Nicodemus mm-hmm. or the Samaritan woman. They're just mm-hmm. people living their lives, and then all of a sudden they meet Jesus mm-hmm. and their little story, which had it not been for their encounter with Jesus, they'd have been lost to history. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. But they encounter Jesus, and their little story gets caught up in this grander story. Mm-hmm. And so if you're listening to in this turning to Jesus, recognizing that your life 
has the chance to get caught up into the big story um, in all these ways. You know, it's funny. When we were in Rome, um, we, I mean, I've been there, gosh, what has it been, my 15th trip to Rome. Um, and so we, we we don't venture out a whole lot. Cindy and I don't. It, a lot of that has to do with timing and, you know, me needing to be back here and all that. So I mean, I've done a few little things here and there, Florence and some other places. And um, and so this year we uh, we went to Orvieto, which we've never done before. Just a train ride. I, I don't know. I've forgotten how far it is. It's an hour and a half maybe there. And it's this city on a cliff. It's kind of interesting. You know, it's mm. way up on the top of this hill. And it becomes a... Um, it became a a um, kind of a safety place for the popes in the Middle Ages. You know, they built a fortress up there because it's just hard to get up there. <laughs> you know, it's hard to it's hard to get your troops up there, and so uh, numerous popes have hit out up there through the years. Uh, most famously, I think Pope Julius, um, Pope Leo, um, when when Charles V's troops came into Rome and kind of unbeknownst to him, and start sacking Rome in fifteen twenty seven. Um, well, the, the Pope hides out up there. Well, anyway, but there's this beautiful church up there, you know, and massive, um, just, just, and very different than the churches you see in Rome. Well, one of the most famous statues in Rome, um, at St. Peter's Basilica is the Pieta, Michelangelo, mm-hmm. you know, where he's holding, where Mary's holding the adult body of Jesus. And it's always been a little bit of an, uh, uh, it's always caused a little bit of intrigue because when you look at the face of Mary, she's a young woman, a contemporary actually of of Jesus, in, at least in the way that she looks and he looks. So that's led to a lot of questioning. So what is Michelangelo saying? Obviously, Mary was not a young woman when she was holding the adult right. body of Jesus. <clears throat> um, but anyway, lots of conversation about that. But it's a very famous um, sculpture. One of the reasons is is because it's so striking, and it's Michelangelo. I mean, my goodness, it's incredible. It's one of my favorite statues, and um, and it's just you look at it and you can't believe it's marble. I think that's the other thing. You think, okay, you could not you could not take stone and make it look like that. <laughs> I mean, this, right. you just couldn't. You can't do that. And uh, but turns out you can. And I've seen it many times. So we go to Orvieto and we go up to this church up on this cliff, and they have a Pieta in their church. And you know, Luke, I'd never thought about it, but it's because I'd just never seen it. Um, in that Pieta, Mary is holding the body of Jesus. Mary Magdalene is there, and she's on to the side. But Nicodemus hmm. is standing behind Jesus with a ladder, I think. But he's got like the, you know, the 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 way that he brought the body of Jesus down off of that cross. And uh, I stood there and looked at that, and I told Cindy, I said. You know, Nicodemus belongs in the Pieta, if you think about it, because he's the one, he and Joseph he got him down. went and got the body of Jesus and placed him in maybe in Mary's lap. We don't know. but um, And I thought, way to go, John. I stood there right then and thanked the Lord for John. Thank you, John, for telling us, because you're right. All these stories have been lost into, uh, you know, into antiquity. But here's this religious scholar humbling himself to go to Pilate and ask for the body of this itinerant preacher that nobody really knew what to do with. You know, what a, I don't know, I found myself drawn to that. I took several photos of that statue and I just stood there at it for the longest time and pondered, what must that have been like? And I couldn't help myself. I asked myself, so, had I been a religious leader 
wonder if I would have gotten written into the Pieta. Would I, mm. you know, it was a pretty humbling moment for me, to be honest with you, to, um, first of all, to thank the Lord that I wasn't tested that way. <laughs> <laughs> but second of all, to thank the Lord for Nicodemus that he was and, and he, he came through, you know, so yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? He so, did. He didn't just show up at night. That's right. He yeah. came back in the daylight. That's right. Yeah. In broad daylight, right? Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Well, so, I think we're at about time. Okay, good. It's been good. Thank <laughs> it you. It has been. <laughs> um, so thanks for listening, everyone. And I, well, you might have Katie Reed Hodges back with you next week. Wow. wow. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> so thanks for listening, everyone. for listening to the Tell Me More podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at fbca.org to find out more information about the podcast and our church. Thanks for listening. Have a good day. Have a good day. Yeah, I'll work with that.